This podcast is dedicated to our friend, Josh Alper. Welcome to Know, the, the Journal, Journal of, of Lifelong, Lifelong Learning. Learning. Podcast. Welcome to the No Journal Podcast. Thanks for listening. This is our music show. It's not a music show in the, well, what I imagine is the traditional sense. We don't have live performances. We don't actually talk about music that much. But music is sort of a character, or at least the elephant in the room in all of these stories. We're going to hear about aging punk rockers, Life on the road and on the street from a former busker. Close encounters with ACDC. And what happens when you interview that manicured beast known as Nick Cave on a particularly vulnerable day. Our first story comes from our regular contributor, Haya Swanheiser. This next question is stupid. Um, <laughs> um, so we'll go, we'll go for the, the predictable one. Um, well, why? Why don't you go for the stupid one? Oh, all right. Well, I guess I should preface it by saying that I grew up with a very serious mustache. What do you mean? Um, my father had a very serious. He was very serious oh. about his mustache. Oh, yeah, and he was yeah. very um, sort of philosophical about it, Absolutely. and so I, I came to appreciate uh, facial it hair. Require, and, uh, it requires a uh, real resilience. I'm writing a book, and it's a funny book about depression. And it's called A Bunch of Stupid Shit That Saved My Life. And uh, basically, it's in the form of a list of things your doctor probably wouldn't prescribe for depression. Examples include being in a shitty band, fennel plants, and talking to yourself. This chapter is called Nick Cave's Record, Let Love In. I listened to this record over and over again when I was very ill, and I liked it. Actually, I loved it, even though I hated everything. Why this record? Why a record at all? Even way back in 2003, no one listened to records. And gee, Haya, couldn't you have chosen something a tiny bit more cheerful to listen to since you're all depressed and shit? Let Love In is not Mr. Cave's best or coolest album, and I don't have much memory of the act of hearing it. I can't even tell you what songs are on it, not off the top of my head. I remember the cover, though. It's scary, and features the emaciated torso of the artist, surrounded by smeary red... blood? I remember flipping the glossy black disc and placing the needle on it again and again when I was pretty sure no one else was in the warehouse. Don't get the wrong idea though. The scene was not goth romantic and I did not look cool. I had on a parka and sweatpants, my hair was greasy and my face looked like a puff pastry because I had to be crying most of the time in those days. Nick Cave's voice, in case you haven't heard it, and in spite of the fact that I'm vaguely embarrassed to even try to describe it, 
resonates like a pipe organ thrown to the bottom of a well. It's the growl of a terrible animal who secretly reads French poetry. It's furious and threatening, but very much in love with its own skinny silver vein of unkillable tenderness. And I don't know why I need that, but I do. I need it in the exact same way in which I don't need something a tiny bit more cheerful to listen to. On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. All of which must be why, years later but still intensely depressed, I agreed to interview Nick Cave in person. Working at a weekly newspaper, I often had access to famous people as well as talented ones. Interview opportunities came my way regularly. Call up James Franco, whined my editors. He's a total attention whore. It'll be easy. But I wasn't paid to do interviews. They would essentially be volunteer work and a lot of it. The results would be extremely public, would not be controlled by me, yet would bear my name linked forever to the name of someone I hopefully admired. So mostly I was content to let other people get the privilege and prestige of dealing with famous people. To tell the truth, I hate fame. I hate what it does to art. I hate its form of money laundering. I hate what it does to ordinary citizens. The effect of promotional efforts on journalism makes me sad and worried. And I especially hate what fame does to the famous. So normally, I don't want any fame near me. I've worked very hard to make sure that I have talent, intellect, glamor, and surprises in my life, but not fame. This way I get all the perks and none of the bullshit. However, when our music editor sent around a message reading, does anyone want to interview Nick Cave? He'll be here in San Francisco. It took me exactly five seconds to respond in the freaking out affirmative. For the first second, I was elated. During the second second, my fame hate kicked in. My horrible, evil, depressed brain took the third second with, you're too stupid to interview anyone, let alone Nick Cave. You are unprofessional and cray cray and will only embarrass yourself. Seconds four and five were entirely composed of, I will never ever forgive myself if I don't do this, never. Interviewing Nick Cave was, as suspected, hard work. I was not well in the head, and in addition, had zero experience interviewing serious and accomplished musicians of international renown. Usually, I just hung out in bars with my beloved locals who fawned all over me, even though I always yelled at them that they didn't have to. I write about you because you're good, not because I like you, I'd say, and mean. They were still overly nice to me, even if they were super cool. I was too stupid to interview anyone, let alone Nick Cave. I was unprofessional and cray-cray, and I would only embarrass myself. But oh well, the date was set. So I read everything I could get my hands on, listened to all his records again, and got a haircut. I practiced using the recording device. And because I was not well in the head, I spent a lot of that same chunk of time worrying about Galveston. A very big hurricane was headed for that city, which is built on a three-foot-tall island six inches off the coast of Texas. 
The people of Galveston are very poor and sometimes have been told untrue things about the effect of God on the weather. So a lot of them didn't want to evacuate the island the way the government was recommending they do. A lot of them probably also didn't think they'd get their trailers back from the government afterwards, and if they did, they'd have some good reasons. Possession is nine-tenths of that particular set of laws, ask New Orleans. So they stayed. The island flooded spectacularly when the hurricane came. Power was out for days, and then the weather turned hot. The storm left boats on the highway and animals cooking alive on rooftops. Mobile homes had chest-high rivers of snake-infested yellow mud running through them and people still wouldn't leave. They angrily wanted ice, but they wouldn't leave. From Wikipedia, on September 11th at 8.19 p.m. Central Daylight Time, the National Weather Service in Houston, Galveston, Texas, issued a strongly worded bulletin regarding storm surge along the shoreline of Galveston Bay. The bulletin advised that residents living in single-family homes in some parts of coastal Texas faced, quote, certain death, unquote, if they did not heed orders to evacuate. Reports said as many as 40% of Galveston's citizens may have not paid attention to the warnings. Ike made U.S. landfall at Galveston, Texas on September 13th at 2.10 a.m. Central Daylight Time as a high Category 2 hurricane with winds of 110 miles per hour. You can swap seats, can swap seats in. There's um, the mirror there. Alright, now you get the TV, so... Well, I don't mind the TV, (laughs) I just don't want to see myself in the mirror doing an interview. (laughs) It puts me off. Nick Cave, in person, was exactly as you would imagine him to be. Magnetically terrifying and 100% magnificent. His jewelry was delicate yet masculine, and I had never been that close to hand-tailored clothing before. He looked like a manicured beast and viewed me with the unwavering forward focus of a predator. He was gorgeous, patient, honest, funny, looked capable of roaring, and the air flowed around him like a transparent cloak. I'm not kidding. The air flowed around him like a transparent cloak. What you can't see in the resulting published interview is that the first thing I did is I told Nick Cave all about Galveston. Did you hear about um, the people in Galveston? No. And God. The, people were describing it in these amazing apocalyptic yeah. terms. And the snakes in the mud. Three feet of snake-infested mud is covering and everything. And furthermore, that I'd been thinking about him and thinking maybe Galveston was a job for a poet. And that's why I was so glad he was here in San Francisco. We really need a poet. <laughs> I hope Nick Cave gets, gets here soon because somebody needs to make sense or, or, or at least poetry out of this because it's just so, it's too intense and I can't figure it out. Some people would have thrown me out right then. What you also can't see is that Nick Cave and I had some kind of meaningful connection that day. 
that sounds funny or like a joke, but it isn't. I still don't get it. I still don't know what he was seeing when he looked at me or what he thought I was up to. Actually, maybe I do. I have a thing where I'm nice to famous people, but as previously stated, have zero respect for their fame. And it makes them love me. It's not sexual. It's just that they're not used to anyone being nice to them without wanting some fame juice. Nick Cave appreciated my insane story or something. Perhaps his heightened senses correctly told him I was really, really not out to get him or even impress him, yet that I was also not a complete idiot. Because the facts are these. At the after party of his show at the Warfield Theater the next night, Nick Cave saw me coming and immediately used his whole arm to get Jello Biafra out of his way so he could greet me with a warm hug and kiss. My husband, displeased, continues to this day in a willful misinterpretation of the whole following conversation about the meaning of local music and the ensuing second hug and kiss goodbye. On the cheek, come on. And having done it, imperfectly and scared and wrong and maybe irresponsible, the published interview was actually excellent, and people loved it and said nice things, and my horrible, evil, depressed brain was never able to find a way around the fact that I had done a good job at something difficult. Eventually, my regular brain started to develop the idea that although I could easily be classified as disabled, it didn't maybe mean that I couldn't do my job or other things. The idea that maybe being this way is kind of not bad all the time. The idea that just because I can't do everything doesn't mean I can't do anything. Let this be a lesson to anyone who says, oh, her, yeah, she's just, she's just fucking crazy. And then proceeds to not befriend, not hire, not smile at, not look at, not invite, and not respect her. She may be fucking crazy, but she may also be fucking cool. She may be someone who charmed the starch out of a manicured beast. Despair and deception Love's ugly little twin Came and knocking on my door I This next story from Chris Bolton could almost be from the Missed Connection section of Craigslist. Except instead of looking for lost love or maybe someone who lost their wallet on the subway, you'd be looking for the band ACDC. This story first appeared on Chris's excellent Story Life podcast. Hello, this is Chris and Grace. Please leave a message after the beep. If this is ACDC, you should come to uh, Melanie's party tonight. And actually, if this is anyone else who would like to come to Melanie's party tonight, they're definitely welcome. Uh, but ACDC should definitely come. This was our outgoing message, mine and Avery's, one evening in May of 2001. The message wasn't atypical of us, but 
the weird part was we actually believed that ACDC, only like the most famous hard rock band ever, could at any moment pick up the phone, call our unlisted number, and ask us, two total nobodies, where the cool party was. Here's some background. We'd just moved to Portland, Oregon from California. Avery and I were dating back then, and I think we were both relatively happy with the arrangement. Avery, well, she's cute and short and very spunky. She's from a small town called Phillipsburg in New Jersey. Neither of us had been to Portland before, and all we knew about it was that it was cheap, liberal, and relatively cool, as in hip. We found an unbelievably affordable apartment, and both of us got jobs waiting tables. We furnished our place from a Goodwill outlet store that would drop the price of their furniture by half every day until it was sold for $1. All in all, we were pretty darn pleased with ourselves. I had the opportunity recently uh, to rehash this tale with Avery, who still lives in town. I stopped by her place with my recorder, and she fixed us tea. This is the story of two dorky 20-somethings who, for one nail-bitingly blissful evening, were, in our own minds, the coolest new kids in town because we'd invited ACDC to the party. So we hang up the phone. We're like, oh my God! We tell everyone, we're like, don't leave the party, ACDC. We just talked to Angus. ACDC is coming to this party, you guys. So no one is allowed to leave. I think we're going to the Home Depot to get some stuff. Okay. We're we're going out way near the out by the airport to the big box stores to pick up some stuff for our new place. We were on the freeway in the minivan I'd borrowed from my parents for the move, and I remember it was twilight, and we were probably half lost, as was usually the case back then, um, when Avery spied a tour bus parked off the freeway in a hotel parking lot. The bus was flagrantly decorated from bumper to bumper with a larger-than-life depiction of Angus Young in his signature schoolboy outfit, wielding his guitar and energetically uh, sliding or possibly leaping across the length of the bus. I've never known Avery to be a card-carrying hard rock fan, so I don't know what caused her to emphatically insist we get off the freeway and circle back. But what I'd like to think is that seeing Angus above the freeway and the fading light somehow struck a power cord deep in Avery's heart. the Red Roof Inn out on Airport Way and I tried to go into the hotel but it was like a really cheap hotel it didn't have like a lobby or anything and that's where they were staying that's right we were thinking that they'd be hanging out in the lounge yeah if, uh, <laughs> if they were there their entourage exactly. but no such no such lounge at the Red Roof Inn unwilling to give up so easily we loitered around the tour bus for a while scheming of ways we might meet the band 
Avery's excitement infected me. And I mean, I used to listen to Back in Black in my room when I was 14, you know, like working out on my mail order bench press, but I hadn't really given them much thought since. Avery started talking about how cool it would be if we could get them to come to the party we are going to later that night. That night we happened to be going to a party, and so I decided it would be prudent for us to invite ACDC to come to the party via a note on their tour bus. We found a piece of uh, binder paper in the van, and like a pen and a crayon, and simultaneously we began illustrating and addressing the party invitation in a way that we thought, you know, the bad boys of rock and roll might just get a kick out of. Because you wrote, you wrote dirty deeds and the deeds done dirt cheap and then you had like these stick figures having sex with each other i don't remember that i guess i i'm not shocked well i i can i remember that i wrote that we were very cool adults he said we are very cool in case you're wondering (laughs) and we will the party will be full of exciting people lots of drugs and alcohol how could you not resist yeah and I said, yours truly, Chris Bolton and Avery Thatcher. And Chris made sure to include all the details. We put a map of how to get to the house and our the phone number at the party and home uh, phone number right. as well. So, like, we were feeling it. Being new to Portland, Avery and I got pretty excited whenever there was a social engagement where we could mingle with other Portlanders who, as it turned out, were rarely native Oregonians anyway. The Portland scene in 2001 was like, not, certainly like nothing I'd ever seen before. And the kids would get dressed to yeah. come to a party at Melanie Goldberg's house. And everyone was just, I mean, like, you wouldn't believe the haircuts at, this par- at these parties, you know? I mean... Avery and I had one common friend in Portland, Melanie Goldberg. And as it turned out, she was really all we needed. Melanie has this uncanny gift for making stuff happen. She's like one of those super moms, only she wasn't a mom and kind of more in a punk rock sort of way. One minute she's a drummer or a clothes designer, and then next thing you know, she's a jazzercise instructor. Her home was lodged between an industrial building and a repo lot and was the epicenter for hipster happenings. And she had weekly concerts and dance parties and even vegan brunches in her basement where she built a tiki lounge complete with a straw roof and tables painted with hula dancers. She stocked a rolling bar with cheap booze and charged a dollar for a beer or three for a cocktail. Anyway, this was our opportunity to really make a name for ourselves in Portland. Impress Melanie and her cool friends and the word would spread like wildfire. People would say, yeah. You know that couple that just moved up from California and drive the green sparkly minivan? They're like best buds with ACDC. Okay, sure, it was a far-fetched plan. Did we really think ACDC was going to grab that piece of binder paper from under the windshield wiper and give us a ring? I don't know. But the, the silliness of it made us giddy. And when we got home, I made that answering machine message you heard earlier, and we both started getting ready for the party. Avery got especially decked out for the occasion. 
<laughs> I was wearing this like huge, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's those hats that were popular in the 70s that are like giant and round. Big it's like brimmed. a huge brim. It's like the kind you'd, you'd wear in like an English, uh, walking through an English meadow. An English muffin? Yeah. <laughs> And I was wearing like a 70s disco polyester shirt and I was wearing these tight hot pink pants with this gold metal belt with a big unicorn medallion on the front and it was metal all the way around and it was very small and I had it cinched tight around my waist (laughs) with high heeled boots and big earrings. Dress to impress or possibly confuse, Avery and I set out that night on a high note. We were like, we're really gonna impress all these, all these Portland hipsters. hipsters. Yeah, we're like, we're, we invited ACC. We're who did you invite? Exactly. So we get to the party unfashionably early and immediately tell all six people that are there that we've invited ACDC to the party. It's actually great to get to the party armed with a good story, even if it's far-fetched, because it's something you can keep falling back on uh, between beers and bathroom breaks, especially for someone like me who gets nervous in crowded settings. We're at the dance party, and we're kind of we're kind of getting a little bit drunk because... Because we did that back because, then. Because that's what we did. <laughs> and so the all of a sudden, one of Melanie's roommates came rushing down the stairs. She was freaking out. She was like, Chris and Avery, you guys have a phone call. I think it's Angus. I think it's Angus. Well, wait a minute. ACDC. Wait a minute. Because what I remember is she was like, who else did you tell? Oh, right. Okay. Right, right, she was right. before she got hysterical. She was like... She was like, all right, who else did you call? There's someone on the phone posing as Angus Young. You guys didn't tell anybody else? And they're like, no, we just told you guys. Uh, and they're like, well, there's someone on the phone says it's Angus Young. <laughs> wants to talk to Chris Bolton or Avery Thatcher. <laughs> it was so awesome. And, oh, it's really hard to do an impression because he has that, like, Australian accent. Yeah. But he said, hey, this is Angus. <laughs> <laughs> And I swear it was really him. And he was like, hey, how's the party going? Like, <laughs> and so he kind of was like asking us about the party and how many people were at the party. There were about five of us all crowded into Melanie's closet-sized bedroom as Avery rocked back and forth on Melanie's zebra-striped bedspread and chatted with Angus Young. To our surprise, he kept on asking if there were any young tarts at the party, meaning gay men. Avery at one point made me go downstairs in search of young tarts, as if perhaps there was a gay buffet table in the basement that we had somehow missed on the way in. I was kind of trying to not necessarily promise him that he that there would be young young boys here that were but it was this like really weird nebulous conversation where i was trying to say that there were young men here and i still don't even know if angus is gay i don't know i don't either but he was really pushing that we did tell him that there was one guy who was dancing around in gold jazz shoes but that's the most 
okay, maybe you're not convinced. I wasn't at the time. I mean, what are the chances it wasn't a prank? Maybe somebody was setting us up. Maybe rather than being the coolest kids in Portland, we are about to be the biggest suckers. Perhaps somebody got the note before ACDC did and decided to have a little fun. But if it was a prank, it was uncannily well-conceived. Angus eventually said he had to go, and we figured that was that. But then the phone rang again, and again. And every time we thought it was over, he'd call back and run on about young tarts and how he wanted to come to the party and how we were doing and how the night was going and just random party talk. We kept on getting a little more excited. They kept asking more and more details about the party, like trying to size us up. Yeah. So this goes on for a few hours and we're passing around the phone and Angus seems to become more and more interested in the party. And then finally he says, while I'm on the phone with him, yeah, I think we're gonna do it. We'll send our people over to check it out. So we hang up the phone, we're like, oh my God, we tell everyone, we're like, don't leave the party, ACDC, we just talked to Angus, ACDC is coming to this party, you guys, so no one is allowed to leave. And so there was like, we were just, just about out of alcohol, so Chris and I went to Safeway. The people that lived at the house called around to different bars that um, they knew that people hung out at and told them to come to the house. By this time, I'm sure most people thought we were blathering idiots or part and parcel to some kind of elaborate prank. But Avery and I, we were pretty much convinced. When we got back from Safeway, we camped out on Melanie's upstairs couch, our noses pressed up against the window. And after what seemed like an eternity of frosting the window glass with our beer breath, a gold-colored sedan pulled up in front of the house. This car full of kids pull up. There's like three 25-year-olds in like khaki pants. Yeah, like kind of pre- some preppy kids in, in like a, a, nice a, car. In a nice car. The Nobody party. in a nice car would have pulled up to this party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, no one in a nice car would have driven through this neighborhood. <laughs> so we invited these people in, and they walked around the party and touched things and peeked into doorways like they were inspecting the integrity of the house's foundation rather than the atmosphere of the party. They told us that they worked for the uh, Rose Garden, which is where ACDC was performing, and that their job was to do basically whatever ACDC wanted them to. And they said they'd been woken up in the middle of the night to come drive out to this party. They pretended to be grumpy about it, but I think they enjoyed the power they had. They basically held the key to ACDC, and we were willing to do anything to appease them. And I remember one of the guys like looked over at a girl who was sitting in the tiki booth and was like, give me a cigarette. <laughs> like, like I've never seen anyone act like that, but like, give me a cigarette. Who, who gives you the authority to be like, give me a cigarette mm-hmm. to a complete mm-hmm. stranger? Yeah. They said, yeah, this looks like a pretty cool party. This looks like the kind of place that Angus would want to hang out. We'll call him and tell him it's cool. And we're like, okay. So they did. They got on their cell phones and they talked to him. The Rose Garden kids didn't stay long. They got on their cell phones and apparently gave Angus and the guys the green light, smoked another cigarette, and disappeared in their gold sedan. Avery and I took position once more on the upstairs couch, 
clutching our Pabst Blue Ribbon beers. But as the night wore on and 1 a.m. rolled around, guests were leaving, and we eventually drunkenly admitted defeat. They, they never came. They never came. Angus never came. That's the anticlimax. Yeah, but I mean, I think it was for the best. Yeah. We passed out on the couch, and Chris, I was laying directly on top of Chris, and we slept the entire hard to imagine what would have happened if they had come. I mean, how do you entertain a bunch of old rockers that have seen it all anyway? Okay, you know, sour grapes, whatever. But what we really wanted, perhaps selfishly, was the story. Something that we could tie up at both ends and lay down at the feet of the gods of coolness. I mean, a story like that, you can bring it with you anywhere. You might think, things really suck now, but one time we invited ACDC to a party and they totally showed up. You can impress almost anyone with that, like if you had somehow had tea with the Queen of England or something. It's like you immediately become a more interesting person. Well, in the end, we did have a good story, I think. Perhaps an even better story than what we had hoped for, because it was truer to who we were back then. And, in fact, it was not without its own surprise ending, either. Made our way home the next day, back to our apartment, Totally hungover. Totally hungover. Totally ready to go to bed for the second time. Yeah. But then when we got home, we saw that our answering machine was blinking, and it was Angus. One line, one messages. Message one, Thursday, 12.49 a.m. Hello, Mike. This is Angus. Yeah, Mike. I just wanted to call it back, got your message, and, uh, what a baby to call it tonight, yeah? And, a bit of a party ourselves tonight, and it's all good, so, yeah, take care, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. And those messages. Next up, Nathan Dalton brings us the tale of the left-handed Martin. The guy who first told me about Steve Hollis described him as an overgrown Boy Scout. His tiny North Beach apartment is like a mini-museum. It's crammed with stuff. Boxes of old comic books, paperbacks, hand tools, curios from the 50s, and musical instruments. Lots of musical instruments. Steve works as a clown. A balloon animal clown at weekend street fairs and farmers markets. But for a lot of years, he made his living playing music on the street. And when I first went to his apartment, the first thing he told me was the story of how he got his Martin D28 guitar. But before he could tell me that story, he wanted to make me a balloon animal. And, uh. Like I said, I mainly do like the, uh. I go in at the farmers markets. 
And it's much easier. I just sit down, the kid comes walking up. I want to over. And the kid, are you a clown? See, there's a parrot. Well, see, uh, my name's Steve, and uh, I've been trying to get by doing street performing type stuff for many years. Steve first moved to San Francisco from Boston in the 70s. He was immediately drawn to Fisherman's Wharf, where there was a thriving street performer scene. And there was a guy I kept running into. I'd see him, he'd go by and he had a guitar, and I have a guitar. One night he come, comes by, we get to talking, and hey, let's play a couple of tunes together. So we're, we're trying, we don't know each other, we don't know any songs together. We try to play a couple of tunes together. And I said to him, I said, you know, let's go over in that corner over there. I've been meaning to try this corner. It's kind of noisy, there ain't much room, but, you know, the Buena Vista, it's a bar down there. It's kind of an upscale bar. The people that go in there, you know, they got, got, they all got suits on, you know. Let's go, let's go over there. It's going to close in about an hour. You know, maybe some drunk will come out and give us, like, a whole $10 or something, you know. So we go over and we're playing in the corner trying to figure out what we could play. And while I'm, while I'm tuning my guitar, some guy walks by and hands me a bill instead of putting it in the guitar case. And I take it and I realize it's a $100 bill. I don't know, this is like 1977. My rent was $20 a week, you know, and I could barely get that. So I put the, the, the 100 in my pocket and I'm thinking, gee, should I tell the other guy? <laughs> I just met him. And I think, yeah, I got to tell him. So I said, hey, the guy gave me $100, you know, you get half. Then a little while later, the guy that gave us the hundred comes out, and another guy comes up. And they're standing there, and we're trying to do a song. And I look down, there's another hundred-dollar bill in the case. And uh, he asked me for some song. And I start, you know, the plan, I break a string. And I go, gee, you know, I don't have any more strengths. And he says to me, he says, how much is a Martin guitar? I said, I don't know. I guess they must start around 500 bucks. He goes, well, if I give you the money, will you buy one? And I went, huh? He goes, if I give you the money, will you buy one? And I went, uh, uh, <laughs> uh. And he takes out a big roll, and he says, you, will you buy one? And I went, yeah. What am I going to say, no? And he takes, he kills one, two, and he pull, peels off $500 bills and one, $100 bills. Their, their dates got, come walking up, a couple of girls, and they get ready to hop in a cab, and he turns, and he looks at the other guy, and he goes, you know, why don't you get rid of that piece of shit you got? And he goes, he gives him $500. He says, go buy yourself a better guitar. <laughs> and we're standing there, I'm going, who was that masked man, right? I think it was Pink Floyd. I don't know, but I've seen Pink Floyd in concert, and I think, I think the guy that gave us all that money was, was the guy in Pink Floyd. So to this day, if, any, if Pink Floyd happens to hear this, <laughs> I'm still wondering, you know, if you were the one that gave, gave me in 1977, gave me $500 and told me to buy a Martin, and here's my Martin. I've had it all those years. <laughs> One of the good things about street performing, for one thing, sometimes you'd do all right with the money, other times you wouldn't, so you had to accept that. But on the other hand, you weren't going to get fired, probably, you know? <laughs> well, you're not going to get fired, you can show up when you want, and it was sort up to you, and we, could, and we would even drink on the job. <laughs> so I was like, hey, this is good, which then we started drinking too much on the job, and it wasn't such a great idea. Steve's friend Paul taught him how to make balloon animals, since you could make a lot more money doing that than playing the guitar. Once Steve had his act down and learned how to apply clown makeup, they hit the road. And uh, we went up north, Vancouver, he, he knew a couple of girls up there anyhow. And we go to Vancouver, uh, and we make a little money, and then the seasons, it's seasonal too, so all of a sudden we're not making that much money, so we go back to, to, to Seattle and we end up like sleeping under an underpass. <laughs> we're not making enough money. So he goes back up to Vancouver. He goes, look, I'm going back up because there's a place to stay up there with those two girls, right? He goes in his pocket, he pulls out about 15 of those little balloons like that. He goes, this is all I got. And he put them in my hand. 
He goes, make the best of it, man. <laughs> and he takes off. So I'm over there, and I'm hoping they don't break. And I go over to Pike Place Market, and, oh, and I made like, like $5 with them. And I run down the street, and I buy a whole other bag. You can buy like a, a gross bag, 144 And then just before the place closes, I make enough to buy a couple more bags. After the weekend was over, I called him up. I said, what's going on up there? He says, they closed the park. You know, it's a season's over. I'm not making any money. I said, come on down here. I did all right for the weekend. I got a room for the week. <laughs> I got a room for the week, you know, and I got some money in it. Come on back. I'm doing all right down here. Right? So he comes back down, and we're over in Pike Place Market. Then we go back to uh, this cheap hotel room I got. But it's like a real dump. So we go back there, and something wrong. Where's my, where's my, I open up the uh, closet, my guitar's gone. So I go down, I tell the police, right? Guy shows up in a squad car to, to take it down. <laughs> and i am still got the clown face on, only I got well, a couple of tear tracks in the makeup. He goes, what's the matter? I said, they stole my, my guitar. I said, it's a left-handed one, too. So I play backwards, right? It's left-handed. He goes, left-handed part. He goes, I play left-handed. I always wanted a mountain guitar. I'll keep a special eye out for you. <laughs> After that, Steve and Paul headed back to San Francisco. The night they got back, they were telling a friend about their adventures on the road. And I was just about to tell her how my guitar got stolen Friday night. And I go, hey, you know what? She goes, oh, wait a minute. She goes, your mother called. They called your parents back east to see how the police got your guitar back. <laughs> they got my guitar back. It took me a few months to get my some money together and get a ride and go back up there. I guess I should have just taken a bus, but I didn't. So I finally go all the way back up there and I retrieve my, my guitar. About a year later, Steve ran into a friend at a local bar. We, we called him Mandolin Willie, probably because he played the mandolin. And he says, hey, anybody want a airline ticket to Seattle? He says, I found it on the street. I go, yeah, how much you want for it? He goes, 10 bucks. So I give him $10. I figure, I'll just go up to Seattle for a couple of days because I got a free round-trip ticket, right? As I'm trying to board the plane, they go, here, stand over here. I go, what? I know something's up now. I know, And I'm thinking, I know the ticket's no good, right? Some security guards come up. They say, where'd you get that ticket? I said, I bought it from a guy in, in San Francisco. They said, where? I said, oh, you know, in the, in the saloon. They said, what do you look like? I said, you oh, know, he was a hippie in San Francisco. Stealing, stealing, pretty mama don't and all of a sudden, here come the real cops, right? And I go, okay, you know, that's uh, receiving stolen property, and that's a felony. And they started handcuffing me, and they said, where's your ID? And I said, it's on the airplane. I was ready to board. They go to get my suitcase. They go, get my, get my guitar, too. They go, and then they come back with my, uh, with my little suitcase, and I'm handcuffed, and they're ready to haul me off to jail. And I go, where's my guitar? They said, oh, the airplane left. I said, the left with my guitar? And they go, yeah. I started to laugh. They said, what's so funny? <laughs> a couple years ago, I was up in Seattle, and my guitar got stolen out of a cheap hotel room. They got it back, and I had to go all the way back up there to get it. Now, I'm, I'm heading off to jail, handcuffed here. My guitar's going back to Seattle without me. You don't think that's funny? <laughs> They put me in jail, and the guy that's booking me at the jail, he knows I'm going in for a felony for re receiving stolen property. And he starts checking my arms. He's looking for tracks. And I go, I'm not a junkie. I'm just, <laughs> just I was just stupid enough to buy a $10 ticket. <laughs> I'm, I'm a dope. I don't use dope. I'm just a dope. You know, and then he goes in, and, and then he finds a fistful of the balloons, and he throws them down on the desk. He goes, aha, what are those? Because I get, you know, because heroin comes in little balloons, I guess. And I said, those, I said, I'll show you what they are. So I pick one up, and I blow it up, and I squeak, 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 and I make them a little swan. I said, here, give that to a pretty cop. 
But while I was in, there was all the, these other people that were in there. You know, they were all kind of like tough guys. I was the only felon. And it was sort of like, hey, man, he's a felon. Like I had like a little status, you know. Hey, he's a felon. I go, yeah, receiving stolen property. All right, cool, man. What you do? For, what you do for a living, man? I said, I'm a fucking clown. <laughs> yeah, I'm a clown, man. Yeah. If you want a balloon from Steve, you can find him every Sunday at the Jack London Square Farmers Market in Oakland. Sometimes music is unavoidable. It's just in the air, everywhere. And other music is kept like a secret. In this next piece, Katie Dang returns to her punk rock roots. For all of its simplicity, Ill Repute's music was my high school soundtrack. Growing up in suburban Los Angeles in the 1980s, we had plenty to rail against, and rail we did at punk rock shows populated by the disenfranchised youth of La La Land. We didn't know at the time that the bands we were seeing would come to be considered integral pieces in the history of punk rock, listened to by generations hence, and looked to as founders of the genre. They were just what were available, and they served our needs as pissed-off kids out to cure the ills that beset society and establish ourselves somehow in it. Many of the shows were put on by a promoter called Golden Voice. Their signature black-and-white flyers spread throughout the Southland. Each bill was stacked with bands, and for ten bucks, you could see gigs with pretty good sound and gather with the other weirdos in the know. Those flyers lived on my teenage walls, and now in the house that I own, a testament to their continued importance in my life. When I found out Golden Voice was throwing a 30th anniversary party with three nights of shows at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium featuring The Adolescents, Bad Religion, Youth Brigade, The Descendants, TSOL, Social Distortion, Ill Repute, and X, my local SoCal friend and I quickly agreed didn't matter that we live in Boise, Idaho, have careers, and families with young kids. We had to go. The flyer for the show was put up on the fridge. Our old men were bribed into agreement, with a new snowboard for one and beer camp for another, and the children were prepped for their mother's absence. Tickets were bought, with the shipping fees costing more than the entire amount we used to spend for a whole night. The pull of the tides drew us back to the West Coast back to L.A., back to Santa Monica. Once there, our perfectly crappy motel gave us a tiny run-down kitchen and a light in the bathroom that involved screwing in the bulb. But how else should you live when you're seeing punk rock? We donned our dressed-down uniforms, which haven't changed that much over the years. T-shirt of a favorite band. But which one tonight? 
a flannel, but blue plaid or leopard print. Jeans, black or blue. Shoes, boots or vans. And a leather jacket. We head over to the 6 p.m. show and find at the entrance a maze wrapping around itself like a ride at Disneyland for punks. The first person we meet is the mother of three teenage boys who rode the bus from Arizona to come see X. We understand completely. We spot a girl, probably 15, in a homemade adolescent sweatshirt, looking excited and scared. We know how she feels, too. We are at home. The familiarity of the scene is giddying. Once inside, with drinks in hand, the auditorium opens up before us, and we are welcomed into its familiar fold. The crowd ranges from teenagers to gray hairs, dressed up and downplayed, with everyone just excited to be there. This is still where the outsiders go to fit in. The shows are loosely grouped by theme each night. Friday is the punk rock and roll of X and social distortion, with, somehow fittingly, the adolescents getting the whole thing started. No cash, no job, I'm just a victim of society, a slob, are the first lyrics we hear on the sound system, and they set the pits a-rolling. We return on Saturday for a more politically inclined evening featuring TSOL, Youth Brigade, and the convictional questioning of bad religion. Sunday night is full of lighter-hearted hardcore with the Dickies, Vandals, and the Ernest Descendants. There's also a surprise appearance by a version of Black Flag featuring original members Chuck Dukowski on bass and the inimitable Keith Morris on vocals covering their entire first EP, Nervous Breakdown. The crowd is blown away by their appearance, and video cameras abound as people try to be still and still rock out. None of the bands disappoint, and our recognition of the songs is in turn reassuring and inspiring. At first, it feels like you don't want to look too closely on stage, because if you don't, it could just as well be 25 years ago. The enthusiasm of the performers and their overall demeanor seems just the same, but if you look hard enough, you see the lines that mark us all. The droop of the jowls, the sag of the skin, the circles under the eyes, those damn wrinkles. But in the lights and on the stage, everyone looks just like we remember. One night on the floor, I wind up next to two kids, aged about 11 and 13, there under the watchful eye of their dad. You can tell he's an old punk rocker like the rest of us by the look in his eyes. The younger kid, a boy, looks frightened at the bodies crashing around and the sudden sways and surges that take the crowd along with them. When a second pit opens on our right, the dad moves over into a new protective space. We look at each other, and in the language of pit speak, it's established that he can trust me, but I can take over shielding the left side of his kids while he covers the right. It's sealed in a nod, and we do our respective duties while the band plays on. We used to protect each other this way, and now we protect each other's kids. Throughout the course of the three nights, I don't see a single person that I expected to run into. I had imagined a sort of misfits high school reunion, but there are no identifiable faces, although there are plenty of recognizable types. It's a familiar scene, but not quite familial. I thought that it wouldn't make sense to be there without seeing my old friends, but it still does. I do wonder more than ever where they are. I try not to wonder why they're not here. 
I'm finally done in when ill repute takes the stage on the last night. The years melt away, and I am back. I shout along to every chorus and favorite line. I'm surprised I remember all these words, but I do. Their hair is gone, but their chops are on, and they carry themselves the same way I remember all those years ago. Midway through a rousing rendition of Cherokee Nation, I have trouble containing my emotions. Everything that once made me into a fucked-up kid who needed this music comes back to me. The decaying family, the inability to fit in, the awkwardness of being too smart for my own good, and the rage at the injustices that I saw everywhere, all leading me to find release in music that was as furious as I was. I hadn't heard these songs since before I went to college, fell in love, left home, worked at real jobs, lost friends and family members, and started my own family. I still see the evils of the world, and I am still furious, and tonight ill repute still speaks to me. Does that mean that I never grew up, or that I kept my core values intact? Is it childish to still have a need for these sounds? I am older, and yet still able to inhabit this space, to hear the words and music that are not only ingrained in me, but that make sense of the things that don't make sense in any other context. It is the poetry of my life. Whatever it meant then, I realize it still means now, and for a moment it is absolutely overwhelming. It's quite something to be part of a subculture, an individual that is a component piece of something bigger, to take an active role in a small corner of history, even if it is just pop culture. It wasn't done on purpose or knowing what it would become. It was just an outlet that we found and threw ourselves into. We certainly never thought that we would be where we are today 30 years ago. When the last show is over, the crowd dissipates, heading off into the night. There are promises made to come back again in 10 years for the 40th anniversary shows. We make our way back to the known and towards the future, ears ringing with the sounds that sustain us. I'm glad we're older. I'm glad we made it. No Journal is a project of Literacy Works. Check out more stories at nojournal.org. That's no with a K, K-N-O-W, just in case. We'd love to hear from you. Email me, liam, L-I-A-M, at literacyworks.org. Our executive producer is Paul Heavenridge. The show is produced by myself and Nathan Dalton. That's a much younger Nathan Dalton playing guitar in the background, by the way. I didn't tell him I was going to do this. Thanks for listening. <laughs>